0: This is, a, this is a message that, uh, that really God laid on my heart this week. And uh, and I believe this. I believe that it is a critical message for a church at a critical point in history. In 1 Samuel 17th chapter, it is a, it's a familiar story for anyone who spent time in Sunday school, any time who's... Anybody who spent time hanging around the church, in the middle of this this story, the story of David and Goliath, we're told in 1 Samuel that David makes this declaration. And my hope is this, is that this declaration, that it will will resonate in your heart and in your mind, that it will resonate to the depths of your soul this morning. David said this, as, as he was surrounded by the enemy, In 1 Samuel 17, verse 47, he says this, All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. It's not by those things that we would naturally think about. It's not by those things that we would naturally gravitate to. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. God, I pray today that you would truly make your word a lamp unto our feet, a light unto your path. Help us to hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. We commit this to you in Jesus' name, amen. I want to paint a picture for you this morning. I want to give you a, a window. And as we look through that window, here's what we see. We see a a young mom. And she's putting her son to bed. And as as she tucks the little guy in, he looks up and he says this, Mama, when's daddy coming home? She works hard to fight back the tears as she looks at her little boy and she says, I don't know, baby, just pray. She leans over and she kisses him on the forehead and she tucks him in real tight. And then she walks out of the room. And as she walks out, she can hold back the tears no more and they flow freely as she goes and lays her head on her pillow. She begins to cry out to God. Because what she said is true. She doesn't know when her husband's coming home. In fact, she doesn't know if he's coming home because 16 miles away, he stands at the edge of a battle line. And for the last 40 days, a giant has railed against him and against the nation that he serves. Not only does she not know whether or not Her husband's coming home. She doesn't know if her nation will survive. And so as she lays there on the pillow, wiping away the tears, crying out to God, she cries in desperation because what she does not know is this, that her prayer has already been answered, and it's been answered in the form of a shepherd boy. Perhaps you walked in here this morning, and you're trying to reassure that child, and you're trying to push back the tears in your own life because it seems like the enemy is railing on every side and you have been in this season for a long time. In fact, you can't even count the days. And you're at that point where you you don't know if you can even survive. Friend, I got news for you. God has already heard your cry. And he has already arranged for your victory. And it will not come in the fashion that you think it will come. But you can trust God for that shepherd boy. Let me take one step further. Because here's what I'm even more convinced of. I'm more convinced that throughout this room this morning, there are hundreds of of shepherd boys because you see we live in a country all you have to do is turn on the television all you have to do is take a quick look on a computer screen and here's what you'll discover that we live in a time we live in a season we live in a day and age where people are crying out in desperation and they're wondering is there hope let me say to Calvary today, let me say to Orlando today, let me say to Florida today, let me say to the United States of America today, let me say to the world today that there is hope because God is raising up a generation of shepherds. And God has a plan. God has a plan. So this morning what I want to do is I want to take a few moments to talk to you about how you can defeat the giants in your life. Because God has called you, friend, sir, ma'am, God has called you to the kingdom for such a time as this. See, you're an answer to someone's prayer. You're an answer to someone's prayer. But it requires you. To rise up and be the champion that God has called you to be. It requires us as a church, individually and collectively, to rise up and be the champions that He's called us to be. Oh, the giants are real, and they are imposing. David's giant, nine feet, nine inches tall. The spear on the end of his sword, the spear alone weighed 15 pounds. The shield that he carried weighed over 125 pounds. Make no mistake. Goliath was not the figment of someone's imagination, nor was he overhyped. He was every bit the giant that he is described. And yet greater is he that is in you. Greater is he that is in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we defeat the giants in our life? How do we conquer the giants in our life? How do you conquer your giant? Well, if we look at the story of David and Goliath, there are powerful principles. Principles that don't just apply to a shepherd boy in the Valley of Elah, 16 miles west of Bethlehem. No, they are principles that apply in Orlando, Florida today. And I want to walk you through those this morning. The first thing that I want to point out to you is this, is we, we cannot follow the crowd. We have to stop following the crowd. It, it's so easy to do. It's so easy to go, well, this is what they are doing. This is what they are doing. And, and as David got up to the battle lines, here's what we find. As David got up to the battle lines, Goliath begins to taunt the armies of Israel. And what it tells us there in 1 Samuel 17 in verse 24, I want you to notice this. It says when the Israelites saw the man they all ran they all ran they all ran from him in great fear. So I want you to imagine this. Okay, David is sent by his father Jesse to go up and see how his brothers are doing. right? So David makes sure that the, that, that, that the flocks are taken care of. And he makes this 16-mile journey from Bethlehem to the Valley of Elah. And as he gets there, he's curious to find out what's going on. What, right? Because what was David's assignment? He was sent to the Valley of Elah to get a report, to see how his brothers were doing, to see how the battle was going. So he gets there and he says, what's going on? And this giant steps up, begins to rail, and everybody starts running. And David's standing there going, "What? what, what, where's everybody going? Now, what's the natural reaction to do when you're in a situation and everyone else is running in fear? Come on out. I don't know why everybody's running, but I'm running, right? Isn't that, isn't that what you're going to do? It's natural reaction to follow the crowd. It's absolutely instinctive. It's, it's an intuitive thing to follow the crowd. But understand this, that more often than not, what God calls you to do is counterintuitive. Let me say that again. What God calls you to do is counterintuitive. See, that's what, if you look at Psalm 1, Psalm 1, 1 says this, blessed is the man. And it immediately it says, blessed is the man who does not follow the crowd. Blessed is the one who does not follow the crowd. This principle, it's woven throughout scripture, that we cannot be people that follow the crowd. I will tell you once again, I believe that this is an alarming trend in the church world today. For some reason, we want to figure out how we can get as close to the world and follow the trends of the world. And friends, that is a self-defeating process. We cannot be people that follow the crowd. The, other, the next thing is this, is you can't be swayed by the critic. And there will always be, when you are called to do something great, there will always be critics. And, and you know what amazes me? Is the critics tend, tend to come in the most likely fashion. The criticism tends to come from the least likely source. Who is David's biggest critic? It's his brother. His brother, his brother who knows him. He has, he has seen the character of David. He knows the courage of David. He knows the moral fiber of this young man. But what does Eliab say about his brother? He says, You conceited punk. Well, the original Greek, or the original Hebrew rather, doesn't use the term punk. That's the Edgarvin translation. Here's, here's, what, here's what he says in verse number 28 When Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? Why have you come down here? You came down here for some show. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. And immediately, the criticism comes. Before David takes a step into the battle line, before David engages on any level with the giant, the criticism comes. You will always face criticism. This is the reason why it's important that we embrace what the Apostle Paul said when he said this, am I now striving to please God or men? For if I'm striving to please men, I am not a bondservant of Christ. You know what I realize as the pastor of this church? I realize that on any given Sunday that there's a few of you that walked in here and you don't like me. I have to be honest with you, that bothers me. I'm one of those people, I can be in a room of a thousand people and if one person doesn't like me, I want to know who they are. And I want to know why, and I want to try to win them over. But the reality is this, is that if you allow yourself to be seen at all, there are going to be those folks who are going to not like you. Now, if you don't like me, you don't have a good reason. Because I'm genuinely a nice guy. But we have it. In fact, I, I, I tell our pastors, our leadership team, this regularly. I tell them, as a leader, you don't get to choose whether or not you make people mad. You just get to choose who you make mad there will always be, there will always be, there will always be the critic. And if you allow the criticism to mold you, if you allow the criticism to make you, here's what you're going to find, the criticism will imprison you. Let me say that again. If you allow the criticism to mold you, if you allow the criticism to make you, what's going to happen is this, is the criticism, it will imprison you. So, if we're going to defeat the giant in our life, we cannot follow the crowd. We also, we, we can't be swayed by the critic. Number three, and friends, I'll tell you, this one is absolutely vital. It's absolutely important. And it's one of those that I see us doing far too often. And it is a f- Fatal error. Number three is this. Don't try to wear another person's armor. Don't try to wear another person's armor right? David ends up standing before Saul. Saul is the king of the Israelites. Saul is a man that has incredible fame. Saul, for over 20 years, has led the nation of Israel, and he's led them in battle after battle after battle, victory after victory after victory. Saul has, Scripture tells us, Saul has slain thousands. So Saul is a mighty warrior. And His answer to David's declaration that David's going to go forward and face this giant, Saul said, here, put this armor on. Number one, the armor is famous, right? It's legendary. It's it's the weaponry of, in that day, Saul would be almost superhero-like. He's definitely legendary. More than that, David knows this armor well because in 1 Samuel 16 it tells us that David was one of Saul's armor bearers so it wasn't armor that was unknown to David and it was armor that had an amazing track record but it was not God's plan it was not God's way And here's what happens so often in the church world. We'll see God move in a certain way in this location and we go, God, we want you to do that here. We we see God bring a victory to a certain individual because they responded to God in a certain fashion and we go, okay, I need to follow that formula and do that. God, do here what you did there. Do now what you did before. And, and, And we get caught up In the way that the armor looks. Rather than having a reliance on. And a surrender to God. Let me let you in on a very important principle. In fact, I want to show it to you. Take your Bible and I want you to turn to the very front of the Bible. To the book of Genesis. Okay, Genesis 1. Okay, so here's what I want to do. Let me have, uh, let me have one of those microphones. I have, I have blue-white. Do you have it? Genesis 1? I want you to read the beginning of that. What does it say? In the beginning, God created the. That's habits. it. That's all I need. Try it again. Those, the, those, In the those... beginning, God created the. Habits. So what did God do? Created the heavens. He created. In the beginning, God created. So the first thing that you learn about God, the very first thing that you learn about God, is this: is what He is creative. Okay. The first thing you learn about God is this: is that He is creative. Okay. God created. And everything that you see, God created. Do you want to talk about the creativity of God? Think about just the the, the, the species of spider. I don't know why God created so many of them. No, no, no. Let's go something something a a bit less imposing. Let's talk about trees or flowers. The wonder of God. The grandeur of God. And the very first thing that you learn about God is this. Is that in the beginning, God created. And yet... We all too often, we try to limit God, saying, God, you need to move in this way. God, you need to move in this fashion. God, this is what you did in 1972, so this is what you need to do in 2016. And God says, listen, that's not the way that I worked. And so often, we miss out on the victory. We miss out on the miracle. We miss out on the amazing thing that God wants to accomplish in us and through us. And the, and the giants continue to rail because we're telling God how to do it. Because we're trying to put on old armor. And David quickly recognized. He said, "This is not good. It's it, I can't I cannot move around in this." You see, we we can't follow the crowd. It's time for the church to stop trying to fit in. Instead, it's time for us to start standing out. (laughs) Will they talk bad about us? Some of them will. And yes, it's the vocal minority. But we can't be swayed by the critics. You know the worst thing that happened to the Pentecostal church in America is this. Buildings like this building. Let me explain. I'm not not picking on this building because God's made it very clear that this is where He wants us to be. But here's what happened. Back in the day, this this modern Pentecostal movement started about 1900. The Assemblies of God, the organization that we're a part of, started in 1914. 300 men gathered in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and they formed this fellowship just a little over 100 years ago. And they, they, they 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 gather with this sense of we want to see God do something great. And these were pastors. They, they pastored in, in, in churches that were in old warehouses. Some of them, there were churches that, just, that, that met in, in brush arbors. They had churches under the trees, they had churches in, in, in some pretty rough spots. Calvary, when it started, it started in a tiny little building. Every time it rained, the thing flooded. every time the church worshipped it rained spiritual rain but all across America here's what happened is God blessed and as a result of the blessing the churches grew and we went from meeting in old warehouses on handmade pews and metal folding chairs to having glorious buildings with massive seating and orchestra pits that can bring cars up out of the basement if we want. And something changed because now instead of the one thing being God change a life, now it's God pay the mortgage. And here's Here's what happened is pastors and leaders, we, we had to go from preaching the reality of who God is to being very careful that we didn't offend that major donor. You see, we, we got caught up following the crowd, and as a result, we started catering to the critics. And, and then when God did something in one spot, we... We said, God, okay, we need you to do that here. And the giants just seem to get bigger and more numerous. And along with that comes the giants' threats. In fact, that's the, the fourth thing that I want you to understand this morning is that you, you can't be fooled by a, a giant's threats. It tells us in 1 Samuel 17, verse 43 into verse 44, that the Philistine, that he cursed David by his gods. And he said, come here. He said, am I I a dog that you would send a child out here with sticks? Come here, little boy, because today I'm going to feed your flesh to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Make make no mistake, friends, the enemy is always talking. That's what he does. Talk, 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 right? Why is that? Well, I remember this from the playground in my school days. I won a lot of battles just by talking. I know that probably surprises you about me, right? But I could convince people that I was going to do things that I had no earthly ability to do. Listen, I'm going to punch you so hard. Right? Anybody else ever hear somebody say that? Anybody else ever say that knowing that there's no way in the world that you could hurt that person? And yet all you had to do is talk, right, and throw out a hollow threat, and as long as you sound convincing enough, oh, 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 yeah. I know kung fu. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, that's when you went over the edge. Okay. Don't tell them you know stuff. Just tell them you're crazy. They're not going to believe you know stuff because they've been around you enough to know you don't know very much. Crazy because everybody's got a little bit of crazy in them, right? Everybody's normal until you get to know them. Once you get to know them, you go, that person is like seriously full-on crazy. And that's what the enemy does. The enemy is always talking. This is why... This is why we're told that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not physical, right? But they're mighty through God. For what? For the pulling down of strongholds, for the casting away or the casting aside of imaginations. Because what does the enemy do? The enemy talks, 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 talks. And you will always, listen... You will always find that the crowd is running in the wrong direction, that the critics will always be speaking their voice, that there will always be an unhealthy model to follow. And the giant, there's one thing you can be confident about, with the giant, the giant's going to be talking to you. But in that, I, I, I don't have to worry about the giant as long as I don't forget the true source of strength. See, that, that giant is standing there, and he's looking at himself, and he's looking at David. He's looking at himself, and he's looking at David, and he's doing this comparison game. That's where he made a big mistake. We sometimes get sucked into that as well. We'll play the comparison game, right? We'll look at the challenge, and we'll look at our resource, and we go, ah, uh, No. Can I tell you, people, people lose at the comparison game every Sunday. They come in here, and they, they, they want to honor God. They want to honor God with their life. Uh, God, I want to honor you with my life, but I, I've got all these things going on, and so I, really, I don't have the time. Resources, God, I, I want to be faithful. I, we know, I know what your word says about the tithe, but, but God, I can't, and so I, 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 I look at what I have, I look at what my responsibilities are, and it, it just doesn't add up. I don't think I've ever found a time in my life where the comparison game works. And it seems like I'm always completely dependent upon God putting his finger on the scale. But I love the fact that he always does that. Let me give you, let me give you an example. So last week, I was, uh, I was in prayer, and, and, and during that time in prayer, I really felt like God had spoken to me about something that we as a church that we're supposed to do in the area of missions, uh, a ministry that we connect with, that we give uh, financially to, that, that feeds people around the world. The number of people that they're feeding, it has massively gas- escalated because of this huge refugee crisis across Europe. And I really felt like God speaking to me and saying, "Ed, you, as the leader of a church, you need to respond in much more significant fashion to this crisis that's impacting the world." And I said, "God, I, I, we're 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 we are giving all that we can give to missions. I don't know if you've ever had this kind of conversation with God, but I'm having this conversation with God. God, we're we're we're, we're giving a lot. I don't know if you, I got, God, I don't know if you looked at our budget, but we're we're in. Okay, we're 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 we're, we're a great missions giving church." And God said, I, I, I'm calling you to do something greater. And so I said this. I said, okay, God, we'll do it. You're going to have to provide. Okay, Let me just, just share you the number and freak out a little bit and then tell you God's solution. So I felt like God said, in addition to what you're already giving, you need to give an extra $150,000 a year to feed these people. It's a million meals. Well I really felt like the Lord told me that we were supposed to provide a million meals. I said, wow, that's a big number. Okay, God, I'm saying yes. You bring in the resource. So I get done praying. Right as I get done praying, my phone goes, bing, I've got an email. It's an email from our church administrator. And she tells me this. That... Florida Hospital, Florida Hospital parks cars in our parking lot during the week. Florida Hospital needs to park, they need space to park more cars in our parking lot. I do the math, and if it hits the median number that they're talking about, guess how much money it will be? Yeah, so... So I say this, I say, okay, God, so you want us to give $150,000 to provide a million meals for people around the world, um, and you've, we don't have to take an extra penny out of our pocket to do so? Now, let me tell you what happens right after that. Like, boom, I mean, I'm like, wow, God, you are so amazing. And then right after that, I went, you know, we could spend that money in a lot of places. There's a lot of things we could do with that money. Just, I just want you to know that as a pastor, I, I face those same struggles, those same, same temptations that you face. But it, it's, isn't it remarkable that when you say yes to God, here's the thing. Oftentimes, we think God's calling us to do something extraordinary. We think God's calling us to some huge sacrifice. When it, it all belongs to God, and, and, and see, that's what David understood. He looked at Goliath, and he was not, he didn't see Goliath as some imposing giant because he had this understanding. And so he makes the declaration. He says, listen, listen, giant, you're not going to feed me to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. In fact, I'm going to feed you to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air because all of those who are gathered here will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you. Or it doesn't say he will give you. And this is what I love about this moment. It doesn't say he will give you. David's talking to this giant, right? Mano one on one. That's a battle there in the middle of the valley of Elah. But what does he say? David doesn't just see the giant, he sees the giants. Because Goliath was not the only giant in the army of the Philistines. The Philistines were this, this race of very big people. He just happened to be the biggest, nine foot nine, kind of sizable. But all of them, I mean, there were giants behind the giants. And David didn't have this myopic view of going, I just have to deal with this and then we're done. No, here's what he says. He says, listen, it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you. That's what he says there in, in, in 1 Samuel 17, 47. It says, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Friends, God always, have a, always has a greater victory in mind. He always has something more spectacular than what you can see on the surface. And I love the fact that David doesn't just see the the, the giant in front of him. He sees this giant army and he goes, you all are going down. Every last one of you. When I get done whooping him, you just get ready because you're next. It's, it's It's not just understanding the moment. It's walking with this disposition in life. And that's what it and, and 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 listen, in order to live with that way, we can't stand there and go, come on, giant, come on. That's not what David does. When Goliath makes a move, it says this in the next verse, 1 Samuel 17:48. Notice this: as the Philistine move closer to attack him. David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Don't be afraid to step into your moment. Don't be afraid to step into your moment. Don't be afraid to step into your moment. David isn't going, okay, here we go. Come on. All right. David's like, let's go. Come on, giant, bring it. Because you are going down. This is my moment. It's not just my moment, it's a God moment. And don't be surprised. Listen, don't be surprised. By what God does. Don't be surprised by the miracle. You know, the, the part that I love the best about this story, and I want to I paint this picture for you. So I'm going to back up just a little bit. David goes, stands before Saul. Saul says, okay, David, go get him, tiger. Put this armor on. David puts on the, the armor, and then he attaches his sword. And he's walking around, he's got the armor and the sword, and he's going, This is just, this is not a good idea. He leaves the armor and he leaves the sword. And instead, what he does is he's got a staff and a sling. He goes down to the brook of Elah and he selects five smooth stones. A lot of people will tell you the significance of the five smooth stones. Do you know why he took five stones? If you know, you know more than me. I have no idea why he took five. He only needed one. Scripture doesn't tell us why he took five, and there are preachers that will give you all kinds of spiritual reasons for him taking five. That the five represent the five. You know what the five smooth stones represent? Let me help you. They represent five smooth stones. But in that, it says this: First Samuel seventeen. It says, so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. But you know what David went home with? I love this. David went home with a sword. David didn't go into the battle with a sword, but he goes home with a sword. Because the end of 1 Samuel 17 tells us this, that the, the armor of the giant that David took it home as a trophy. So I want you to imagine David every morning when he gets up, you know what he's looking at? Boom, that sword. The giant's sword. It would have been interesting to watch David, this little guy, carrying this, 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 this sword and the shield off. Hey, can you, can you carry that for me? I got this, this, this thing's heavy, right? David takes the giant's sword home as a trophy. And, and, and friends, I'm convinced that there's a lesson for that in us. These things that the enemy is coming against you with, these things that you are so afraid of, friend, those are things that God wants to give you As a trophy. Those are the things that God wants to give you as a prize. Those are the things that God wants to give you as a reward as you stand up and face your giant. The very thing thing that you think is going to defeat you is the thing that is going to be used as a reminder of God's faithfulness and God's strength in your life. Everybody who was running away was going, Wow, look at the size of that sword! I can't get to within feet of that guy because he's nine foot nine. He's got this crazy long sword. He just, you know, I mean, we're done for. David goes, eh, I'm not so much worried about the sword. Watch this. Bunk. Oh. <laughs> Excuse me. Goliath. Oh, sorry. I realize you can't hear me, but I kind of need this sword for a minute. Shoo. This is the giant. This is my trophy. <laughs> Don't be surprised at what God can do in you and through you. Somewhere tonight. A mom will. will be putting her baby down to bed. And that baby will say, Mom, is Daddy coming home? And she'll say, I don't know, baby. Somewhere tonight, uh, A husband will look at a wife and she'll say, do you think there's any hope for our drug-addicted son? She'll say, I don't know, honey. Somewhere in Orlando... Troubled teen who has just been violently beaten by someone who should be their greatest protector is going to wonder out loud, "Is there any hope?" Because where they're at and the situation they find themselves in, they they can't see it. Here's what I believe. Not, not what I believe. Here's what I know. That even though they can't see it, their prayer has already been answered. Because God is raising you up as a shepherd boy.